Hello and welcome to the Curio Conversations podcast where we bring you expert insights into Azure data platform and analytics solutions. My name's Justin Langford. I'm one of the directors at Curio and the host of this podcast. Today I'm joined by Eddie Suavo, one of our account managers, and we'll be talking to a customer, Mike Parry from Track Global. Track Global use telematics to collect data from black boxes, which they ingest through an Azure platform to analyze uh, vehicle telemetry. Yeah, so Mike Parry, I'm the infrastructure and security manager and also look after the DevOps team for Track Global Solutions. Your journey into IT, yeah. where did that all start? That sort of started was straight out of school into an apprenticeship, really. This is going, well, 15, 16 years ago. Sort of thing. So it was straight into IT, just doing like a apprenticeship, doing hardware, fixing PCs and printers. And then I moved into help desk for an insurance company, motorcycle insurance company in Altrincham. I was there for about seven years. I went from there, just moved from help desk into infrastructure, into to looking after the actual technical estate. And then from there, I went to work for Capita, doing networks and telecoms. So or another change again, so going from like the servers into the network and telecom side. Again, I was there for three years, getting an understanding of that, and then decided I wanted to move back into the server infrastructure side again. So I was sort of headhunted to come and work for Track Global. And when I started there, there was three help desk guys, and... I was brought in to basically sort of mentor them and also look after the estate, the infrastructure for that. So that's all the web servers, networks, database servers, file servers, things like that. And that's sort of how my journey's progressed. And could you introduce Track briefly? So, so what do they do? How big is the organisation? So Track Global Telematics, what they do is they do the what we call the black box and app product for vehicle telematics. So from everything from putting these boxes into fleet companies so they can monitor where their cars are, where they're, they're going to get stolen, etc. To the insurance side where we install them in young drivers' cars so they can monitor their driving behaviour, so speed and braking, where the car is, how long must they've been using it, if they're using it out of an hours they shouldn't be, things like that. And then we get scores on the back of that. And based on how the score is they can get money off their renewal. So the intention is to reduce the premium for a young driver? Yeah, it's about reducing the premium and also it's about um, trying to reduce the risk right. for drivers, so young drivers, by giving them scores, they can see how they're driving. So, so encouraging the right type of behaviour. Yeah, that's exactly right. So for the carrot side of the business, which is part of Track Global, mm. we have things like called like red weeks, so we can see how they're driving and if they're driving particularly badly, if they keep doing it, we will send them a notification saying, stop speeding, stop speeding, okay. and it's a point where we'll actually have to say, we're going to have to cancel you because you are a high risk and we don't want yeah. that risk on our books. So trying to improve driver safety as well. Well, that's great. And, you know, changing the way, because insu- insurance is typically pretty low tech and low unsophisticated in the way that they quantify risk. So, you know, I'm a 17-year-old driver and I've got a 1.1 litre car and I live in this postcode. Those are all of the inputs that determine the price for the premium. So actually going down into a lower level of detail around, you know, the hours that you're driving, the braking and acceleration, the type of roads you typically drive on, mm-hmm. you know, that's a whole layer of sophistication beyond what most insurers, you know, yeah. how the market exactly. operates generally. Exactly. And when it comes to renewal, you're, you're able to give them a better discount because you know how they're going to be, how they've been yeah. driving. 
So you're not just basing it on a static sort of risk profile. Yeah. yeah. And and that is also not based on a moment in time because I guess you're then incentivizing them so good drivers in the first year of driving will get a better renewal in their second year. If they've been driving crazy and irresponsibly, then their premiums might go up and up. Yeah, if they have or if they haven't already been cancelled. Yeah. 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 But and, and you're making that data that decision driven by data. Yes. Not uh, not a gut feel or not you know uh, averages across a whole range of people. It's actually. It's very, very personal to that individual and that car yeah. and their style of driving. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Can you talk a bit through the kind of end-to-end process, just in a really high level? Yeah, so we have Black Box, which has got a, a modem in, which sends the data to, we have a messaging service, okay. and the messaging service just listens for events, and events are usually like, where am I, how fast am I going, etc. And then obviously that comes into, into the database, and then within the database then, we have things like a lot of stored procedures when we do all the journey algorithms and calculations. Right. And then that returns it back into the database. And then we have web services that then look at these databases and return customer scores to their phones or web pages via APIs. But when you start, as these types of insurance policies get more popular, the number of drivers increase, mm. the number of users increase, just managing that, that volume of data and the velocity of data coming into your, your platform there must be some challenges with that scaling. Yeah. yeah, so the amount of data that we've got has grown massively. We're into terabytes of data now. And yeah, again, scaling. So this is where we're starting to move our telematics product out of the traditional on-premise data center solution into Azure where we can scale up, we can scale out as and when we need to. And we've started to redesign our database structure for Azure, right? Instead of using the using a single database for all data. We're using Azure SQL DB platform service stuff and using shards. So we're splitting the data by customer by month. So we just, as I say, highly scalable and really efficient, really fast. That sounds like a lot of work to kind of reimagine the database schema in a sharded format because you can't migrate a single database schema and scale that across tens or hundreds of databases. Was that a lot of dev effort? So that was a, quite a bit of dev effort, yeah. So our developers have built like a tool in that, okay. which basically every month now a procedure runs to basically create new the customer month shard every time. So it's all automated now. And then we tried to keep about three months worth of data live, but we're going to be, when we've migrated all our customers onto it, we're going to be into the, the thousands of mini databases rather than one big database. And in terms of the kind of benefits that you've seen of that, compared with the old model of scaling up, just buying bigger servers, more CPU, yeah. more memory, more spindles in the SAN, what are the kind of benefits that you've seen from that scaling out process? It's the amount of t- the time it takes us to actually implement it, I suppose, because usually when we're in the, in the old data center world, we have to speak to data center, say, we need more of this, we need more of that, and it's sort of the time constraints of that. We'd have been in Azure and we're us in control. We can basically, it's almost like a, a click of the button. And if, we, if we're seeing latency or we're seeing the database is struggling, we just scale up to try and improve the performance and then Absolutely. away you go. Yeah, great. It's brilliant. It's actually, it's a totally different way of working now that I'm used, to, that we're all used to. We've gone from the whole on-premise into this new world where everything's quite easy to, when it comes to scaling things around and spinning up architecture things like it's great um, and just thinking about your choice of azure did you look at other cloud vendors and 
I think we would decide to go straight for Azure because our developers are all .NET, you know, the our engineers are all the drawn right. Microsoft fans, I suppose. So it was a natural choice. It was, it was, it was just a natural choice to move yeah. there. We've um we've just acquired a company in Canada, uh, who do telematics over there to try and get us into the North American market, but they're all Linux and Mac users. So okay. their telematics products was all moving into AWS. Okay. So it's an interesting transition at the moment. Trying to we're trying to get them to move into our Microsoft yeah. world. And do you take advantage of any of the license mobility rights of your Microsoft license agreement? So can you move uh, Windows licenses or SQL Core licenses to your Azure spend? So when we were in the data center, we had um, Splar licenses for all our okay. kit. Right. So we never actually owned any sort of Got Microsoft it. licensing. So at the moment, we're, we're just using the sort of rental model that you get yeah. okay. with Fine. the SQL licensing. And that gives you lots of flexibility. Mm, yeah. Have you looked at reserved instances at all? Yeah, so we, we started looking at the reserved instances a couple of months ago How about because we were trying to figure out where the best way we can save some costs. And we were thinking if we buy two or three VMs and then just consolidate a lot of stuff onto it, there's a bit of savings to be there, made there. But it's just so fast-paced, the amount of things you can do to change and save money. And there's a balance there because Microsoft share the benefit of capacity planning and, and forward planning by giving a discount, mm. but that also locks customers into running a certain type of VM or family of VMs, which to a certain extent might negate the benefit of moving to cloud and having the flexibility. So, yeah. But we've seen like 60% cost savings with some yeah. customers. That's what we need to start looking at because what we potentially we were doing like in the old data center world was we were almost like building one web server or a server pair application. That's right. Rather than now we need to start looking at we don't need five VMs here. Yeah. We just need one. Yeah. And we just move everything onto one, yeah. but spec it up a bit more. Yeah. So that's why we need to start looking at. Yeah. And the balance of one medium VM versus five small VMs is almost always cheaper to yeah. license. You know. A, a, a couple of tiers higher, but run consolidate that workload yeah, into one. Yeah. And then if you can take reserved instance on that workload, then that gives you a massive cost reduction. As yeah, well. yeah, absolutely. Can you talk a bit about security. Was there any pushback or concerns from the business around um, putting data in the cloud? Not for us really, because a lot of it's our own data. So the carrot stuff, it's our own insurance company. So that, that was all fine that when we were going to do that. And then the only thing we really had to speak to was at the time was our fleet clients just to make sure that they were happy with their event data going up, going to be processed in the cloud. And presumably you don't, you've just got a, an ID number or a GUID or something, so you don't have particular vehicle or driver information. So yeah, you're no. kind of protect, you're abstracted a little bit from the... Yeah, as part of the whole yeah. GDPR stuff that went in, we're, the only thing we are capturing is the event data and even the register sent okay. from the box. It is just a SIM yeah. and all the event data, and then we tie that up. Right. Later on. Great. And you've got some SQL 2008 in your estate currently. Yeah. What, what, you know, July isn't that far away in terms so, of end of support. So luckily that stuff sits in the old track world, so that will be moving into the Azure As your SQL DB. Yeah, okay. So that'll, that'll be one headache gone. Great. So yeah, because we've started, what we've done as well is we've built a SQL VM cluster okay. as a server in Azure. And I think that's on SQL 2016 now. So we've migrated the data on onto this one. So okay. that server, SQL 2008 server, is pretty much not getting used now. And 
how important is it for you to run on a supported version of SQL Server? So if you didn't have that project to migrate to the sharded architecture in Azure SQL DB, how urgent would it be to get off that 2008 platform? Very. It wouldn't be optional for you to run at risk? No, it, no it's, we started to see, before we started moving into the shard, we started to see that the server 2008 was struggling with right. the workloads it was doing. So it was definitely going to be, if we didn't move to the shard, we would definitely have had to Do move, something. move to a, a newer instance of SQL yeah. and migrate the data over. And is that also because of compliance as well? That you've got to be running on a compliance... Um, it, yeah, I mean, it's more, yeah, we want to make sure because when we're dealing with externals, customers, we want to give them the assurance that, yeah. you know, the service that the data is going to be on is fully patched, fully updated, fully supported. So that, yeah, we would have had to, yeah. it's one of the. But it was just, well, a good thing that um, yeah. performance was a key driver yeah. as well. Yeah. And I guess you mentioned GDPR already. Are there other regulations that you need to adhere to ISO standards? Yeah, so we're ISO 27001 now, so we adhere to all those standards as well, because that was a that was a big requirement when we're, when our sales guys are talking to big yeah. external companies. It's one of the things that they're looking for. They're looking for, yeah. yeah. Cool. And thinking about the future, do you imagine a point where you can decommission the data centers that you've got and the kit that's running? That's, the, that's the plan. So at the moment, our carrot side of the business, which was all um, policy administration, that's actually gone to OpenGI, which is the, you actually run the transact application. So they host all that for us now. So for track, for track Global, we're just focusing on the telematic side. So we're moving that all into the cloud. And then the policy administration stuff, that's sort of up in the air at the moment, whether that stays in the data center or if that moves up into the cloud as well. But the way that works, that has to almost be IaaS. It has to be servers. So it would mean lifting and shifting the VMs into it, right. into the cloud. It needs to be, and that's when things can get really expensive. So it's it's fine. It's putting working out whether it's more cost effective just to leave them in a data center and buy them some new hardware, or move them in, up into the cloud. Awesome. And a lot of organisations have applications or data centers that would really well are really very well suited to cloud deployments so they run seasonal businesses mm. or they're in a fast growing market but they struggle with a transition from a capital investment model mm. of buying racks of servers or sands and depreciating them over 3 years or 5 years to move into an opex model where they might be spending tens mm. or hundreds of thousands of pounds a month and the kind of economics of the organization if you like and the budget holders really struggle with that uh, emotional transition as much as anything to spend a lot of money every month has that been a challenge for you guys or have the guys yeah so the biggest challenge i suppose for us has been the cost management side of it because the last couple of months we've started to see our spend go quite small and then it's just we're into quite a bit a month now and it's all about trying to manage those costs with the your services so it's great having all these services and you can spin them up quickly but trying to manage it because the i mean the budget's been set for the whole architecture and then all it needs is for someone to leave a server on at a high too high a spec and then you could be another three four thousand pounds on top of what was budgeted for the month so the hardest bit is trying to keep on top of what we said we were going to use every month and make sure we're beneath that yeah. 
Uh, can you talk a bit about what kind of governance or reporting you've put in place to take care of that? Have you got alerts or thresholds? Do you have a separate dev test subscription? No, we haven't got a separate dev test subscription. We've got three subscriptions, so we can manage, we can monitor which are live pre-production and development. And we're using um, Power BI and the Azure cost APIs. Right. So we've built we've built custom reports around that, so we can see exactly how much we're using, if it's compute, if it's database, etc. Which resource groups, things like so we can see quite granular where we're spending the money. And have you got the budget shown in that Power BI report? Yeah. Well? So you've got uh, no, actually, well, no. So we can see what we are. We just know yeah. what it is. Okay. So you know, you've got in mind what your total run rate effectively yeah. is and then when you're above or below that you can see the component yeah. parts. Cool. And does that work? Yeah, it seems to be working all right. Yeah, we're still I think we're a little bit over at the moment, but it's just about trimming stuff down and making sure we turn off stuff that is in dev that we shouldn't be using. So it's just there just staying on top of it really. How much is DevOps a thing at track? It's getting big now. Yeah. It's getting big, yeah. So the DevOps team report to me, so it was initially what I say all on-premise, but now it is looking after the whole cloud estate. Mm. And what do you run in terms of non-production environments? If we imagine this future environment mm. when you're completely in PaaS, will you have persistent non-production environments or will they be spun up and deployed you know, on an as-needed basis? So moving forward, it will be, in the future, it will be just spun up and deployed yeah. as and when. I mean, a good example is we have a guy who works for us who's a data scientist and he's built, as he's got We've got his own resource group, for example, and he's built a platform for doing big data analytics. And what it does, it's, it all runs in Python code. And it basically, when he runs this code, it spins up a load of VMs, runs the query, pulls back the data, and then trashes all the environments in one go. Yep. So the spend is not a lot because it's done all that, gives you the data, and then just tears it all down. And then anytime he wants to run a query based on data, um, some parameters, he just runs that one code and puts them away it goes. And yeah. it's almost like that's where we want to get to when it comes to dev environments. Absolutely. And if you can do some uh, test-driven development and build some use cases where you can deploy the environment, deploy the code, deploy some test data, run the test scripts, tear down the environment and just extract the results of yes or no, did it pass or fail, the cost of that should be pennies compared yeah. with running that environment and maintaining that environment 24-7. Absolutely, yeah. And I suppose, would you need to build a lot of automation into that? Is that where the DevOps it's, automation? It's all automation. Yeah. 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 So, you know, the, the, I guess the role of the developer then becomes to, you know, infrastructure as code and deploying a resource group, a VNet, the resources, then deploying their application code, then deploying some test data, then executing some tests, mm -hmm. collecting the results from that, and then destroying the environment. You know, but you, sh you can do all of that in minutes yeah. and just get to the pass or fail report on the test. And if it did fail, then you just go back to your code on your PC and, and work on fixing that, and then you run the test again. But you know that previously would have taken days or weeks mm. to stand up VMs, install SQL, restore backups of databases, deploy the new code, execute the test, ask testers to come and mm. test the app against that environment and give you their feedback. You know, the it sounds prehistoric or medieval yeah, now yeah. But when you describe it like that, but mm. actually lots of organizations are still working in that way. Yeah. I guess the other thing, as you were describing the technologies that the data scientist use uses, is that the 
barriers to deploying new things like Python, machine learning, uh, Cosmos DB, you know, th there's a whole toolkit which is different now. And you know, going back even a couple of years, customers installed SQL Server from the DVD image. Yeah, yeah. You had 20 or 30 features of SQL Server, and that was it, right? So from an infrastructure point of view and a service management and operational point of view, the surface area that you had to support was relatively defined and, and understood. Now, devs can do all kinds of crazy things with new wonderful services mm -hmm. in cloud, but that also creates a downstream operational requirement. Uh, what's the HADR solution? How do we back up and restore it? What's the cost governance? How much of that is an opportunity versus a burden, I guess? Yeah, well, with the automation, it's absolutely brilliant. So things like the things backing up, it's, you know, it's it's out the box, so all this sort of thing, it's a less of a headache now. The whole disaster recovery HA stuff is it's almost like a godsend because it's it's all there out the box. Tick the box, Tick choose the box. your second data center. Yeah, choose your storage account where it's yeah. going, choose your second data center, yeah. and it's pretty much there. The only thing is with the HA stuff is like putting things like a track manager and things, make sure it's going across those little bits, probably the little bit more of a challenge, but the rest of it, it's especially with the storage, it's just tick box and exercise. Yeah. Microsoft have done what they do really well, which is take complex, bespoke niche mm -hmm. technologies that were the preserver of global enterprises and made that accessible to smaller, medium-sized mm -hmm. businesses with some of these cool things where, you know, we, we spent many years delivering complex SQL disaster recovery solutions, which involve a lot of moving parts with storage yeah. replication and hypervisors that could fail over and DNS and, yeah. um, you know, a lot of uh, moving parts in a whole stack there to enable a customer to fail over from one region to another. And all of that becomes trivial is not right, but it's so much more yeah. straightforward now than it was, and predictable than it was before. Yeah, and that, one of the things we found moving forward is, you know, the developers are coming up with these great ideas to to build all this or let's try and improve the messaging system by using this new product etc and then things like the ha and the backups are almost it's never forced at that high level it's always when it gets down to when my, my team are looking at it, it's like we need to start looking at how we're going to keep this going in the event of a failure one of the conversations that we have quite frequently with customers is the, the power of the cloud and the dream mm -hmm. is that developers can spin up things on demand and you've talked to some of those benefits but the flip of that is the cost control and governance um, and that requires some behavioral and mm -hmm. cultural changes that a developer thinks about spinning up a Hadoop cluster and how many nodes do I need and I need to switch that off the moment that I'm finished with mm -hmm. it. Have you seen or observed a cultural change with the development mindset? We're, we're getting there now, yeah. At first it was, we need a um, service bus spun up, for example, because uh, I don't want to do some testing on it. And then six months down the line, so what are you using, using this service bus for? So like, oh, we stopped using it ages ago. I was like, well... It's costing money. It's costing 1,500 quid a month. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, you're not using it. So, it's yeah, it's a big cultural change just to make sure everyone's turning off what they don't use. It's interesting because when organizations were in the in an on-prem world and they were buying SQL Server Enterprise Edition licenses and spending £100,000 or £300,000 or, or in many cases much more, but that was depreciated over a three-year mm -hmm. enterprise agreement or server and cloud enrollment, people did this kind of budgeting and capacity planning once a year or once every three yeah. years. And now we need to do it every day. But that's kind of having developers take responsibility for that is quite a big change, I yeah. think, isn't it? 
Absolutely. So when we were talking off air, you mentioned that when you first joined the company, the CTO was the DBA. Yeah, when I, so when I first started, we had no DBAs. The CTO was the DBA with all the developers, for example. And then we had a bit of an incident where we were struggling to get our database server working. It was struggling. We didn't know. We almost didn't know what to do. And then one of the guys we used to work with in a previous company, he tried to get hold of one of his old DBAs who used to work with him at OpenGI. Who actually ended up? Who actually working here? Simon. Simon. Right. Simon Osborne. Yeah. yeah. I said, oh, I can't do it as a foreigner or off the, off the books, but I can recommend using our company. And then we got you guys in and pretty much resolved all the issue. And then moving forward, everything's just been smooth ever since. You guys pick up any problems pretty much before they happen and make the recommendations and changes. And so it's you've been a godsend for us because of the amount of data we've got and we are very SQL heavy so it's been brilliant having you guys support and us through this journey. And what's, that, that's great to hear, thanks for sharing that and I guess I'm interested in what's your view of the balance of kind of proactive versus reactive in the service? How many times do you have to call us when there's a problem versus us calling you? Oh, it's, you're, I think it's probably about a 60-40 I reckon because sometimes the way our database work, I mean someone can make a change or OpenGI can make a change or Transactor make a change and then we get just get hit with an issue straight away and that's when we're quite reactive and we have to say to you guys database is running slow getting timeouts we can't figure out where the issue is and you guys are straight on and go yeah it's this this and this it's caused by this we go away and fix it between us have you ever thought about hiring a DBA we, I think we did originally from what I can remember it's actually the, for the cost of a DBA I think we get better value using you guys yeah. as a team of DBAs than having one dedicated DBA in-house. So that the kind of 24-7 aspect of the service is important? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And what are your views on the kind of monitoring and, and alerting that we provide? Would that factor into your decision about whether you would hire someone? Because obviously if you hired a DBA, you'd get a capable individual, but not necessarily a monitoring platform. As exactly, well. and that's the thing, the monitoring is, again, brilliant. You, know, user, you guys are picking up stuff and emailing us at all kinds of the night, in the middle of the morning that we're not even aware of. So... That is brilliant for me, knowing either what's going on or what I'm going to walk into in the morning. Brilliant. And that, and most of the time, it's, it's resolved before we even get there. Yeah. So that is keeping the business going 24-7 is fantastic. Cool. And just thinking like really far into the future, if you were to have a crystal ball and think about five years' time, what would that look like from a platform and estate point of view, do you think? Thank you. It would be, it all, all our telematics core, everything would be in PAS and Azure and, you know, highly scalable, geo-redundant, uh, geo you know, and I, I could sleep better at night not having to worry that things are going to fall over in the middle of the night. So, so I guess that goes on to, to what my second question on that topic was going to be, which is what skills will be required? And you, you'll have seen a big change already in yeah. the profile that you need yourself and the guys around yeah, you Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How do you see that kind of playing out going forwards? Yeah, so it's, well, one thing I've noticed is it's, it's that change from looking at Windows servers now and monitoring that sort of stuff. And it's almost like being mini developers now, knowing code, knowing a bit of .NET and be able to read code back and try and troubleshoot problems in code rather than troubleshooting a Windows server. It's not running. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, so it's a big culture change, and you know, luckily we've got um, we've got some got an online training account, and there's loads of Microsoft courses on that now. So it's just we're just trying to get our guys to just read, learn as much as they can. Kind of self study is that yeah. the primary way of seems yeah at the moment yeah, yeah. and just 
go from there and if we need ex- anything externally then yeah. we'll go from there but I think it's initially it's like let's just see what we can do yeah. try and get a basic understanding of it and then we'll go from there yeah and I guess just in closing if you were to recommend someone a resource a book a blog a podcast an online training course that's been really useful to you to kind of accelerate mm. your learning and help you uh, get comfortable with the with the tech in, in Azure. Is there something that you could put your finger on that would be really useful? Yeah, so we use um, Pluralsight. So we use all their online material. Right. So we've got, we pay a yearly subscription with Pluralsight for so many licenses. But yeah, the all the Azure material on there is absolutely fantastic. It's Great. it's all um, Microsoft trainers, etc. So it's really, really clear, really good. Excellent. Yeah. And you've taken subscriptions for your team and the guys have got kind of personal development plans yeah, that yeah. around that. Great. Awesome. So that's been really useful, Mike, and it's been great to find out a lot about uh, about track and about your roadmap and moves to the cloud and also aspirations for the future. So thanks very much. Yeah, no problem. It's been great.